0: Thank you, Jim. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, you can tell things are looking a little different uh, in here. Um, Mike and Cody put in a lot of hours to help get these up, so thank you, brothers, for your hard work and help. Uh, we, are, we are blessed by your service, so thank you. Thank you for that, and uh, Connie Donovan is also sharing her Christmas banners with us, and they, uh, they are pretty, pretty wonderful to have up here. Certainly uh, add a little Christmas spirit, which is good. Well, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Uh, Normally, we do a couple weeks leading up to Christmas, focusing on the birth of Christ, the events surrounding that. Uh, This year, just the way the preaching calendar worked out, uh, we didn't quite have the opportunity to do that. So we will have a Christmas Sunday uh, next Sunday. We will have a Christmas sermon next Sunday. We're not going to be in Matthew chapter 10 next Sunday. uh, But we are today. Matthew chapter 10, continuing on. Uh, One of the most... Frequent commands in the Bible is do not be afraid. It's One of the most common commands in all of Scripture. Uh, some people say that this command appears in the Bible 365 times, one for each day of the year. And that, that sounds kind of nice, right? Technically, it's, it's a myth. But believers are told many, many times in Scripture not to fear. Don't be afraid. We heard that in our reading from Luke this morning. Fear not. The Bible is very clear that we are not supposed to Fear certain things. We're not supposed to fear man. We're not supposed to fear suffering. We're not supposed to fear the future. That's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? Right? But the Bible's solution to fear is actually very unexpected. The solution to sinful fear is fear. But a different kind of fear. A, a godly fear that fears God above all other Things. As we continue in Matthew chapter 10 this morning, Jesus is continuing to speak of the persecution that the 12 apostles are going to experience after His resurrection. But He reminds them, and us, that in light of who our Heavenly Father is, we need not fear those who would oppose the gospel. And instead, we can actually find comfort and security in a greater fear of a greater God. Let's read our text starting in verse 26. Jesus says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the rooftops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges uh, me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord, we thank You for the Scriptures. Your word to us, Your revelation, Your message to us, written down in a form that we can understand, that can be translated into all different human languages so that every nation, tribe, and tongue might hear of who You are and what You've done through Christ, Your Son. Lord, thank You for the rich treasure that we possess in the Bible. May we not approach it like any other book Lord for it is not like any other book it's inspired it's come to us from you through your spirit you preserved it throughout the ages so that 2,000 years after Christ spoke these words we might together read them and hear them that we may receive the teaching of our Lord Father, would You help us to do just that? Would You help us to receive the teaching of Christ this morning? Holy Spirit, come and open our eyes. Convict us where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need encouragement. And most of all, help us to point our gaze to our great God that we may have a true and good, a right godly fear. We pray this in Your name. Amen. Amen. We have. Three points for our text this morning. Our first point, verses 26 and 27, is fear not, God reveals. Our second point, verses 28 through 31, is fear not, God guards. And our final point is fear not, Christ confesses in the last verses of the text. Now, last week we saw Jesus tell the 12 disciples that they would face opposition from all sides, from rulers from their countrymen, from their family members, from their friends, from all kinds of people. There would be pushback against the gospel. Um, It doesn't really seem like Jesus has been promising them very good things up to this point. He's kind of telling them this is the suffering and the persecution you're going to go through. It's going to get pretty bad. You can imagine the disciples might be uh, having some thoughts roll around their head. They might be experiencing some emotions there, Uh, probably some anxiety and some fear. And if they're not fearing now, as they're hearing what Jesus is saying, then they may be facing that that, that emotion when they're actually enduring that persecution. And because of this, Jesus tells them three times in this text, three times, not to fear. Three times. That's probably significant for us, right? And he gives the disciples good reasons not to fear. He doesn't just tell them, don't be afraid, period, But he gives us very good reasons why we don't need to be afraid. And we see the first of these three commands here in verse 26. Have no fear of them, for nothing that is covered will not be revealed or hidden it will not be known. Now, them here, of course, refers to the persecutors of the disciples that would come later. Do not fear your persecutors, he says. And he gives them two reasons why they should not fear their persecutors in this first portion of our text. Uh, and the first reason, we actually need to go back to verses 24 and 25. We see in verse 26, Jesus says, So, that means he's drawing a conclusion, and we need to look back a little bit here. If you recall from last week in 24 and 25, Jesus tells his disciples that they should expect to be treated like he was because a servant is not greater than his master, nor a disciple his teacher. And so Jesus reminded them, hey, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be treated like I am. Don't expect to be treated better. There's no guarantee you'll receive better treatment than me, Jesus says. There's there's solidarity there, right? And so Jesus says, therefore, do not fear, right? There's a level of comfort that comes from solidarity with our Lord, knowing that we are experiencing to a degree the same kinds of things He experienced. And there's actually a way in which we can fight our fears when we know what's coming. Jesus is telling them, this is what you can expect. If you're going to follow me, you'll be treated like me. But there's another reason that's probably more more relevant to the rest of our text this morning that we're going to give more attention to. We find that in the second part of verse 26. Jesus says, Have no fear of them, for, because, nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Now, what's Jesus talking about here? What does that have to do with not being afraid of, of, of persecution? Well, some people think that Jesus is talking about the gospel going public, that the gospel's been hidden and eventually it's going to be revealed. Um, And I think that's what we see in verse 27 in a minute, but I don't think that's what Jesus is referring to here in verse 26. Now, remember, Jesus is giving the disciples and us a reason not to be afraid. And it seems in the context to see Jesus is talking about the final day of God's judgment, when according to Romans 2.16, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He reveals those things. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says the same thing, that there will come a day when God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. There, there is a day throughout Scripture that's described as the day where God uncovers and reveals all that has been done by every person inside and outside. Nothing that is hidden will not be revealed on that day. Nothing that has been covered will not be known on that day. And Jesus gives this to the disciples as a reason not to be afraid. Why would he do that? Well, let's think about it from their, their perspective a little bit, right? There are going to be things that are done to the disciples that are illegal, right? They go outside of Roman law and Jewish law. There will be things done to them, uh, like the things done to Jesus, right? Taken and arrested in the dead of night, given trial without a real trial. They'll be beaten and imprisoned and, and treated poorly. And there's something hopeless about uh, sins being committed against us that, that are never dealt with, that remain secret forever, that are never brought to light. Right when, when, when somebody hurts us or afflicts us or, or, or does damage to us or commits violence against us, there is something hopeless about thinking that that's never going to be addressed, that there will never be justice for that, isn't there? But yet here Jesus says there will come a day when all that the disciples will experience at the hands of their persecutors will be brought to light and dealt with. It may not happen on this earth, but there will come a day. Nothing will be truly hidden forever. Nothing the disciples experience will be hidden forever. The same goes for us, of course. There will come a day where God's justice is brought to bear on those things because He sees everything. There is no hidden act that escapes His sight done against His people. And on that last day, these things will be revealed as they're judged by God. And and, and this requires the disciples to trust God with with that justice, right? To, to, To trust that I may not see justice done for the things done against me in this life, on this planet, by this judicial system, right? I may not see that here, but I have a promise that God will handle those things rightly, that true justice will come one day. But at the same time, as hard as that is sometimes, notice that this also gives the disciples and us the ability, right? The reason, the chance to trust God with those things, right? We have no reason to say it's hopeless. There's never going to be true justice. All these things that have been done are never going to be dealt with. No, we can say, yes, I can have hope that those things will be dealt with. And this is the great part, right? Human judges mess things up all the time. Innocent people are convicted of crimes all the time. Guilty people are set free all the time, but not in the court of heaven. And so the disciples can know, and we can know, true justice will be done. That's a reason not to fear, right? There is a hope that comes with that. God bringing thorough justice to the persecutors of the church while also Vindicating his faithful people. Now, Paul actually talks about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Go ahead and turn over there uh, briefly. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is actually an encouragement that the Apostle Paul gives to the church in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll read verses 5 through 12. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes this, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as us. But notice when this comes, verse 7, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So if we pause right there for a moment, um, Paul is not shy about talking about the judgment of God. And in fact, for the believer, there is an aspect to which the judgment of God is an encouraging thing. Not because uh, we want all of our vendettas taken care of, but because we know God will make things right. He will bring justice. But that doesn't happen until when, when, does Paul say? the Lord Jesus returns. He goes on in verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marvelled at among uh, to be marvelled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you is believed. To this end, right because of all of this, because this is true, We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's talking about the very same thing. Jesus is in this verse that there will come a day where the afflictions that have been placed upon the church, upon the disciples of Christ, God does not ignore. But there is an aspect to which God does bring a true and righteous, a measured vengeance on behalf of his church. And knowing that he will bring justice provides a basis for courage because, yeah, we may suffer in this life. The disciples certainly did. But to know that this little amount of time we have here isn't all the time there is for justice to come, that points our gaze to the future. We can know, my God will handle this. Friends, do you entrust God with justice? Or are you tempted to take things into your own hands? And how do you think that learning to trust God, to deal with the things that are done against you, as the righteous judge, how do you think that that might help your fear? Now it is the gospel message, of course, that brings this persecution, this affliction, upon the church. But Jesus tells them in verse 27, don't shrink back from proclaiming the gospel, even though it's bringing these sufferings upon you. What does He say? He says, what I've told you in the dark, say in the light. What I've whispered to you, proclaim from the rooftops. In other words, don't shrink back from it, but proclaim the gospel all the more. Yes, you may suffer for it. But Jesus says, knowing there is justice, proclaim it all the more. And Jesus, of course, taught Very publicly at times, we see the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to crowds here. But there's a lot we read in the Gospels that are just conversations, just moments between Jesus and the Twelve. We also see the parables where Jesus tells parables, these these stories, these illustrations. But he does so in such a way that only those who are his his true disciples very close to him actually understand it, right? So part of Jesus' ministry is being selective in, uh, in, in, in what he shares and with whom he shares it. But after Jesus ascends into heaven, he wants his disciples to go public. Right? What does he tell them in Acts 1 prior to going to be with the Father in heaven? He says that they are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. He tells them, blast that message out there. Proclaim it from the rooftops. Yell it. Let everybody know. The response the disciples are to have to the persecutors of the churches is, of course, not to be afraid of them, but then to push forward, to proclaim louder, don't back down, don't change the message. Proclaim the gospel all the more. And and the disciples can proclaim the gospel publicly, right? Uh, We can maintain our Christian profession because we can be confident that God will deal with persecutors. They're not our concern. God will handle that. We don't need to be afraid of them. God's got it covered. He will take care of his people. So fear not, Jesus says. Fear not. Trust God with justice. Trust him to reveal those things and to deal with them in a way that you and I never could. He handles those things without sin. We rarely do, right? But Jesus gives another fear not command here in the following verse, in verse 28. Uh, This time focusing on God's care for his people. Verse 28, uh, Jesus says this. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus turns his attention to the body, to the soul. Those are the two uh, parts of of human beings, right? We have our material body and we have our soul. The spiritual aspect of, of who we are. And Jesus tells his disciples, Don't fear those who can kill the body. Don't fear those who can kill the body. And, of course, in the context, who's he talking about? The persecutors of the church. who are going to do the things we've read about already in chapter 10. But this is the reality of martyrdom, which most of the apostles experienced. Most of them were martyred for their faith. They were killed because of their confession in Christ. Many Christians after them have experienced martyrdom as well. This is a reality Jesus is talking about. It's hard to imagine something we're more terrified of than, than death. Really, it's, it's not death so much as it is the process of dying, right? That's, that's what's really scary to us. Um, and there's a natural element to that, right? Um, there's a natural fear that's okay to have of, of suffering, pain, and death, right? There's a degree to which, yeah, we should preserve ourselves from those things. If I meet a grizzly bear in the woods, I'm not going to try to give him a hug because I don't want him to, <laughs> to rip me open, right? There's a, there's a healthy level of fear there, right? That's okay. There's a natural fear of suffering. And there's a natural fear, I'm, I'm sure the disciples experienced it, of those who would persecute the church. Right? We, we don't want to experience that suffering and that pain or, or possibly even death. We don't, we don't want that. The, the question, though, is this. Does that fear keep us from obeying our Lord? That's the question. Does our fear of, of what man can do to us to our bodies, keep us from obeying our Lord. I remember I was I was uh, mm, like eight or ten. I was at a friend's house, right? And I considered myself a Christian at a time, growing up in church and all that stuff. And, and uh, they asked, "Well, hey, uh, you know, they were not a Christian family, but they they knew that you know I, I grew up in a Christian home." And um, they said, "Hey, do you do you pray before dinner?" And we did every night, of course. But I was like. I don't want these people to think I'm weird, you know. And I said, uh, no, 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 we don't, you know. Because I was, I was, right, I was concerned about what they thought. We're not even talking about death. We're right? only 10 years old at a friend's house. Just, just that, what are they going to think about me, right? We struggle with that. And Jesus is talking here about death. Does our fear of man keep us from obeying our Lord? That's a question we have to ask. Does our fear keep us from obeying our Lord? In the case of the disciples, their, their fear of their persecutors might keep them from obeying Jesus' command to continue preaching the gospel, right? Uh, in fact, we saw uh, a couple weeks ago in the opening chapters of Acts, the, the, the synagogue court tells the apostles, don't talk about Jesus anymore, or, or we're going to beat you, huh? right, we're going to whip you again, we're going to put you back in jail. Well, there's a decision moment. And what do the apostles say? They say, well, we need to obey God, not man, of course. But our natural fear can become a problem when it keeps us from obeying our Lord. But Jesus adds another reason that these persecutors should not be feared. They can only kill the body. Which, we're like, only the body? You know, uh, that's half of what I got here, right? Um, But Jesus is reminding us of something very important. They can do nothing to the soul. They can do nothing to the spiritual component of a person. Uh, Our body exists in the material world but the soul does not. Right? It's out of the reach of everybody, whether that be a human persecutor or spiritual attack. The soul is out of reach, untouchable. We need to be careful. Don't think Jesus is downplaying the body compared to the soul. He's not. They're both equally important in our existence. That's well, why there's a resurrection. But no, Jesus is saying to his disciples, your persecutors may be able to kill your body. They may be able to cause you physical harm, but they can do nothing to your soul. Ultimately, you are safe. You are safe. There's there's no guarantee Jesus ever gives to any of us that physical harm or persecution will be avoided. That promise is never made. But what he does say is that the soul fully belongs to God. and We see that in verse 28. Uh, Jesus says, Don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear him who can kill both body and soul. And Jesus says something unexpected here, right? We may expect him to say something comforting to the disciples, hey, don't be afraid, God's not going to let them touch you, God's not going to let anything happen, um, but that's not, what he, that's not what he says. He tells his disciples that instead of fearing their persecutors, they still need to have fear, but of a different kind and of a different, a different uh, person, we could say, right? They are not to fear their persecutors, they need to fear God. That's what Jesus says, don't fear them, they can only do this. Fear God, who can do this Isn't it interesting that Jesus tells the disciples to cure their fear of man with fear of God? Isn't that interesting? This raises the question, what does Jesus mean by fear God? What does it mean to fear God, right? Because we think of fear and, and we think of, uh, you know, that adrenaline rush we get when we see a shadow we're not expecting or when a rattlesnake runs across our path or, or whatever, right? We, we think of that terror, it's most often what we associate with fear. That's not what Jesus means here. Jesus is not saying we should be scared of God like a child might be scared of the dark. Now, if you are a Christian, what we have to understand is that God is first and foremost your Father. He is first and foremost your Father, not your Judge. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Judgment has been done and dealt with. So our primary relationship with God is that of Father. And one theologian distinguishes the difference between the fear that a slave might have of of an angry master compared to the fear that a child might have of their strong and loving father. They're two completely different kinds of fear, aren't they? A slave might fear an angry master because of the, the bad things that he will do to him. But a child who fears his strong and loving father, draws near to him because of how strong and how loving he is. There's a reverence there, a respect for his father. A sense of greatness that his father has in his eyes that he can't quite even understand. It is a fear that's delightful in a way that draws that child near to his father. The fear of God that Jesus is talking about here That we see all throughout scripture is a a fear of love, of trusting respect, of of reverence that leads us to obey God and seek to please Him. That's the kind of fear Jesus is talking about here. When we truly fear God, we make it our goal to serve Him above all others, to please Him above all others. And here in the text, if the disciples fear God more than man, what's going to be their main concern? What's going to be their main concern? Pleasing God. God by enduring persecution faithfully or pleasing man by compromising their faith? They truly fear God, what's going to be their main concern? And so Jesus shows us here that the cure for the fear of man, whether that be in persecution or whether that be in social settings or whether that be whatever, is fear of God. But at the same time, Jesus doesn't soft pedal God's power and greatness either, right? He's not shying away from the fact that God is fearsome. and In fact, one of the reasons that the disciples can fear God more and find comfort is that God has more power than their persecutors. Their persecutors can only kill the body, but God has full power over both body and soul. As Jesus says, he can destroy both. Now, it's possible that Jesus is reminding the disciples of the seriousness of turning away from the gospel. Right? There is an eternal consequence to turning away from Christ. There is an eternal danger to the soul. Hell is real. So there's an aspect of warning here, I think, uh, that Jesus is reminding his disciples, don't turn away, because what God can do is far worse than your persecutors. There's a seriousness, uh, seriousness here, but at the same time, Jesus is not threatening his disciples. He's not doing that. There's a positive aspect to what Jesus is saying. This is a reason for them not to be afraid of of men, remember. There's a comfort that Jesus calls our attention to here that flows out of God's sovereignty and providence over both body and soul. And Jesus brings up an illustration here in verse 29, the sparrow. I think it's Jesus' favorite bird because of its power for illustration, right? We see it all over the Gospels. or well, at least twice in the Gospels. But a sparrow, we, we, we see Jesus bring up a sparrow in verse 29. Now, we have sparrows around here. Uh, they're very small birds, very, very small, easily small enough to fit in your hand. Right? Pretty cute little birds. And we put out bird feeders for sparrows, of course. We don't, but as human beings, we do. Um, but in Jesus' day, it was actually reversed. Sparrows were food, right? Uh, They were the food that was most commonly sold to the poor because they're so cheap. Two of them for a penny. That's a pretty good deal, right? Two sparrows for a penny. They were cheap. They were everywhere. Sparrows were insignificant. There's nothing special about sparrows at all. And yet, Jesus says, in verse 29, these insignificant little birds, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father in heaven, Jesus says. Not a single sparrow's life ends. Not a single event occurs in that life of the little sparrow apart from the will of God. Nothing happens to that sparrow outside of God's sovereignty and will. And to us, a sparrow is nothing, right? We see a sparrow, we don't think twice about it. And yet God, who made the universe, who put the stars in the sky, who put the boundaries of the ocean... He considers and oversees and ordains the life of even the smallest creature, the sparrow. And that, that sounds very nice, right? It's, it's very poetic almost. But Jesus isn't, he's not being philosophical here. He's not um, being abstract. He's going to bring God's sovereignty into the life of the disciples in a way that is very applicable for them in, in our text today. As we see in verse 30. He's going to make a connection to their lives in verse 30. God cares for the sparrow, the insignificant little bird. And he says to his disciples and to us, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Just as God knows the life of the sparrow, so he knows the exact number of hair on on a person's head. Scientists can estimate. Ballpark, right? But God knows the exact number number. For some of our brothers, it's a little easier than, uh, than others, right? Of course. But God knows the exact number. Down to the smallest detail. Does that really matter? Well, not to us, right? It's hard to see how the number of hairs fits into God's big plan, but God is still aware of it. God still knows. And, and how does he know? Why is it that God's not oblivious to anything? How is it that God knows everything? Because he is not just all-knowing, but sovereign. He has planned out all things. David writes in Psalm 139, verse 16, In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. We don't know how many hairs are on our heads, but God does. And if God knows even the smallest details and cares about them, then brothers and sisters, surely does He not care about the bigger things too, like persecution, like sin, like suffering? He knows the number of hairs on your head. Surely He knows the things that may be done against His people. And here's Jesus' point in verse 31. We see it again. Here's that command. Fear not, therefore. Fear not, therefore. You, disciples, Christian, you are of more value than many sparrows, Jesus said. God gives considerable attention to the life of one little bird, and yet you, you are worth more to him. You are of more value than many sparrows, than all the sparrows in the world. Will he not then watch over the days of your life with even more love and care? Does God not intend more good for his beloved people than for the birds of the earth? Fear not, because Your lives are in your Father's good hands. That's Jesus' point here. Imagine what this would mean to the disciples as they're considering the persecution they're going to face. God's not blind to it. God's not apathetic about it. God is not powerless over it. Nothing's going to happen to the disciples and nothing will happen to you outside of the boundary that God has set. Outside of his sovereignty and providence, God draws the lines. And this is the reality that the disciples, that you, that I, need to know. When we're talking about persecution, the persecutors of the church cannot cross the lines and boundaries that God has established. That applies to every aspect of life, too. But the persecutors of the disciples, they cannot go beyond what God has ordained. They can't go outside of the will of God. And if God has ordained it, then God will have a good purpose for it. That is the richness of verses like Romans 8.28 that we tend to treat as a cliche, but that's the biblical reality. King David, when he was on the run from Saul, was captured by the Philistines. He wrote Psalm 56. And David repeats something throughout that psalm. He says, In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? He says that multiple times. In God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now, man can do a lot. Right? Uh, Saul's trying to kill him. The Philistines were not David's friends. They could have easily executed him. David was in great danger. He's running out there by himself. It would seem... He's very vulnerable. And yet, what is David keenly aware of? He's he's so aware that God was really the one in control. And when he says, what can man do to me? What he's really saying is man can do nothing outside of God's will. Man can do nothing outside of the boundaries God has set. Or take Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, taken off to Egypt, spending years in prison. Man did a lot to Joseph, but what did Joseph say when he reconciled with his brothers? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Whose purposes prevail? God's. Man may think he's accomplishing things, right? Man may do certain things, but really, what can man do to us? Nothing outside of the will of God. And, and if this is true, then we shouldn't ultimately fear man. We should fear God. And if God is our heavenly Father, then we have no need to fear what comes from His hands or what He allows. God is not temperamental. God's not temperamental, right? God's not like human fathers who, who uh, one day may be sunny in their disposition and kind, and the next impatient and angry, right? And that's just for me as from experience as a dad, you know. But God's not like that. His disposition, his heart is always good towards his children. Always. Always. From eternity past, it has always been good. So we can trust him. Yes, man can kill the body, but his ability to do that is limited by God. Right? Ultimately, brothers and sisters, God's purposes is And So Jesus says to his disciples, he says to us, Fear not. Your heavenly father loves you. You are more valuable to him beyond what you can even imagine. So fear not. Not, But Jesus has another promise and a warning to His disciples in the last two verses of our text. To exhort them to endure suffering and persecution and to remain faithful to Christ before men. We see, lastly, fear not, Christ confesses, verse 32 and 33. Now we've seen throughout chapter 10 And we see throughout the book of Acts that the true reason for real persecution is the Christian's confession. It's the Christian's confession. The statement and conviction of what they believe and the life that flows out of it. And that's what persecution responds against. And at the heart of the Christian confession is this. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. That has been what Christians have proclaimed throughout the ages. Christ is Lord. And to say that Christ is Lord is to say that no one else is. For the early church, to say that Christ was Lord was to say Caesar is not. That could get you in some hot water. To the modern Christian, perhaps, in the West, to say Christ is Lord is maybe to declare that society or the government or that the individual is not Lord. But Christ alone is. The confession of the Christian matters. And that's why Jesus turns to that in verse 32 and 33. In light of the coming persecution and the pressures that will come on the disciples to deny Christ as Lord, to turn away from Him, Jesus suddenly zooms back the lens to the final day, to the day of of, of judgment. He tells the disciples that everyone who acknowledges Him before men, verse 32, He also will acknowledge before His Father in heaven. And we see this word acknowledge, uh, but really in the Greek it's confess. It's confess, not not in terms of admitting to a crime, but declaring something is true. We we confess the Apostles' Creed together. I believe these things. That's what we mean by confession. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Confessing Christ as Lord. Jesus is speaking here of that proclamation of, of the disciples. And all the implications of that, right? But notice the, con- the the context here too. It's not just everyone who confesses me. Period. I will confess. But no, it's confesses me where, before men, before men. Here too, we have the context of fear of man, right? Uh, of being in that situation where there is human hostility towards the gospel. Fear of man. It will not be easy to confess Christ as Lord before. Hostile people who may hurt the disciples, who may even kill them. That's not an easy thing to do. That takes courage. There'd be more earthly benefit for them if they just kept quiet about that Jesus guy. Life would be a little better. They'd have a little more comfort, more social standing. But Jesus reminds the disciples that there is more eternal heavenly gain to be found in remaining faithful to him, and maintaining their confession that Christ is Lord. He says in the second part of verse 32 that those disciples who continue to confess Christ before men, who do not turn away from that declaration, Christ will also confess them and acknowledge them before God the Father. Those who confess Christ before the hostile and fleeting audience of men will be confessed by Christ himself in the glorious presence of God. Uh, Jesus, in other words, is saying he will claim those disciples as his. Those disciples that confessed him as Lord, he will confess them as belonging to him, as the sheep of his flock, as his people, as the citizens of his kingdom, because they've demonstrated they truly are his. They've remained faithful to him, not by their own strength, by God's. But nonetheless, they've continued to confess Christ, regardless of the cost. But on the other hand, We see coupled with that promise a warning in verse 33. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Why? Because they have demonstrated they are not truly His. They are not His sheep. That their confession was so meaningless that they threw it away. You don't throw away things that are very valuable to you. You keep them. You throw garbage away. And that's how they treated their confession of faith in Christ. Those who face persecution and, and deny Christ will be rejected by him. And of course, this brings up the question of Peter, doesn't it? Right? We think about Peter. What about Peter? He betrayed his Lord. He denied him three times in a row. And yet Christ restored him amazing. Does this mean there, there, there may be a second chance in this life for someone who denies Christ under severe pressure but genuinely turns back to him? Well, perhaps. But it's not worth taking the chance. It's not worth taking the chance. And it's not really a possibility Jesus wants us to focus on here. Jesus says, don't even worry about that. Just stay faithful. right? Just confess me. Now, really, Jesus is presenting a choice here. The same choice we've seen all throughout this text. You can either be affirmed before men and denied before God where you can be rejected by men and affirmed by Christ before God but you can't have it both ways you can't have it both ways now these early Christians right and other Christians around the world even today had swords at their throats guns put to their heads deny Christ or die And we think, wow, I'm so thankful that I live in America where I don't have to face that kind of situation, right? And and praise praise God. But you actually face a lot more pressure to deny Christ than you think. Every day, in fact. It's just a lot more subtle. And it takes a much more different form. I consider, for example, in our current cultural climate, the pressure and the messaging uh, through social media or through entertainment or through education to accept ideas about sexuality or marriage or abortion that very clearly run contrary to what God says in Scripture. It's very likely in, in, in any given church, maybe even this one, that there are Christians who are more accepting of those things than what they want to publicly admit around other Christians. The kind of before-men situation that we face... It's not a crisis moment where that cold steel is on your temple. It is a gradual drift, slowly eroding away like, like water does to a stone. But make no mistake, to accept these current ideas right, about sexuality or marriage or abortion or, or whatever as legitimate is to deny the lordship of Christ. It is to deny the lordship of Christ. It is to say Christ is not lord over sexuality. It's to say Christ is not Lord over marriage. It is to say Christ is not Lord over life and death. And if Christ is Lord, He is Lord over all, or He is Lord over nothing. And so brothers and sisters, don't drift with the tide of popular ideas. We have a sure foundation for us in God's Word. It is trustworthy. It does not change. So be sober-minded. Be watchful and understand that you still face that pressure, that temptation. And that though our lips may say Christ is Lord, is that reflected in what we actually believe and accept as true? At the end of the day, the question comes down to this. Who will you fear, God or men? God or men? Whose approval matters most to you? That's the the, the choice Jesus presents to the disciples here. And the choice he presents to us. Are going to seek God's approval or man's more? Who do you attribute more power to, God or man? And who will you confess, Christ or the world? Because if we are seeking God's approval first and foremost, if we're fearing him above all, then ultimately what can flesh do to us? What can the world do to us? And we have reason to fear not. During the Reformation, believers in Germany who faced persecution themselves for their confession of faith in Christ wrote a beautiful catechism. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. The first question of which captures Jesus' teaching here so well. This first first question, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has faithfully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Where is the room for fear of man in that? Brothers and sisters, what a comfort we have in life and in death in our Lord Jesus Christ, in our Father's care for us, and in His many and precious promises to us. Fear not. Fear not. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, once again we have come to hear You speak to us through Scripture. And once again Your teaching has been challenging in some areas, and yet so comforting in others. Our Lord, we pray for your help in faithfully confessing you as Lord until the day that we die. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be most precious to us. And we pray that you would help us to fear God in a a right way. Not in a terrified way or a, a, a nervous, jumpy way. But in a way that leads us to draw near to our God whom we love so dear, whose power enthralls us, and yet in whose arms we are so safe. We thank you for your words to us today, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, come. Do a work in us. Where we fear man, help us to fear God more. Where we fear harm, help us to trust our God. That we may not fear, but rest in your providence and care. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.